Hello, this is Editing Kyla popping in from the future. This episode was recorded on May 25th. Since then, a lot has happened. The Black Lives Matter movement has been getting a lot of momentum, and we'd like to encourage you to help keep that going. There are a few ways to help out. Participating in local protests, writing to your local MP in support of defunding the police, writing to your Minister of Education in support of more Black history being added to the school curriculum, supporting local Black or Indigenous-owned businesses, or donating to protester bail funds or BIPOC charities. Any way that you can help keep this going, we encourage. And now, on with the episode. Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we usually challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learn, fuck-ups and all. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello! And this episode, we're looking at how COVID-19 is impacting art and artists. And to talk about that, we're joined by Edmonton's Poet Laureate, Nisha Patel. Nisha is also the executive director of Edmonton's Poetry Festival. So she's sort of got a couple of different angles from which she can tell us about the impact of COVID on art and artists. So Nisha, I'll maybe just start by asking you, how has your pandemic been so far? I think it's been really interesting, uh, mostly because like no one has been through what we're going through right now. So it feels like so much of both my daily life and kind of my short and long term planning has just been like making it up as we go. And I think that has like led to some very interesting like emotional states for me that I've had to explore and deal with as well as periods of like just despair, but also periods of elation. And Mm. so it's been a real roller coaster, I think. Yeah, that's a really positive spin on like the sort of emotional turmoil of this pandemic. I know for me anyway, I feel like I'm sort of at a precipice where I cry really easily. I don't know if that's the way (laughs) it's affecting other people, but a really positive spin on like the creative directions you can go with that. Like it. (laughs) What kind of, what kind of elation have you experienced? I think there's just been moments of like a lot of peace and like a feeling of giving in to the universe where you're just like, okay, like there are things that are out of my control and I have to accept them for what they are. I have to accept uncertainty. And for so many artists, especially, uncertainty is kind of the name of the game where we deal with it so much, financial uncertainty, artistic uncertainty. But in a pandemic, you know that everyone is kind of experiencing it. So you feel kind of more connected uh, to kind of the energy around you. And so for me, it was like a peacefulness almost when I was like, okay, this is going to be my reality, at least for the next two weeks or two months. Yeah, it's a nice way to put it. Like we're all in this together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in a way it felt like that where I was just like, okay, I don't feel so isolated as an artist. It's, It's people across disciplines that are feeling a certain way and we're all trying to figure out a way through it. That's true. I actually felt that same way. Um, it made me feel better just to be like, wow, I have nothing going on, but neither does anyone else. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, I don't know if nothing is the word for it because there's still like the things that you occupy your day with. I don't think anyone is really just like 
accepting nothingness because that's what leads to like the despair they they find other things to do like human beings have to do things and so it's been it's been interesting there are some people who deal with that nothing in the same way and then people who deal with it differently do you have any like covid hobbies that you've picked up so far yeah i started doing lino cut prints which is a very specific type of art form in which you use like sharp carving tools to carve out pieces of artistic linoleum and then you put like block printing ink on it and then you like pull prints on paper so it's a it's a pretty popular art form um and at one point during covid i was like searching for printing presses uh like the kind that I would need to install on like an actual workbench. And I was like, I can totally buy one of these. Um, and my partner was like, how about we just stick to just like basic <laughs> printing for now instead of buying like a $500 press? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty intense. I've seen some of your Instagrams with it. Uh, so is it like hard to carve those out or how much time do you put into each print? Yeah, so I've been doing some of those live recordings, like time-lapse videos, and some of them I've done the drawings beforehand because the drawing can take anywhere between 30 minutes and two hours. And then on top of that, the carving, depending on how much wrist strength I have in one given day, uh, it'll vary. Plus, like, there's different kinds of lino, so you can get, like, an easy-carve lino that leaves uh, like messier lines or like the finer the lines you want the harder it is to carve so you need more pressure coming from like your wrist and your hands and stuff like that so I've been practicing with like a few different kinds of lino to figure out like what my sweet spot is and I've found that my imagination for what I want to happen on the lino far exceeds my skill level right now <laughs> <laughs> Sure, that'll change as you practice more. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of been my my COVID hobby. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> that's a lot more creative than just baking bread like the rest of us. Although I <laughs> love baking bread now. Who knew? <laughs> Honestly, I'm gluten free, so <laughs> we haven't had the time to do too much of the bread baking in my household. Mm. But my partner loves baking bread. You can make gluten free bread. <laughs> yeah, um, most gluten-free bread is quite disgusting to be honest. So I'm not convinced that like committing to that much time for a product I'm gonna like force myself to eat is worth it. Um, I have been cooking with more intention lately, and I think that's really interesting because a lot of your podcast is basically like encouraging consumer consumerism that is more mindful. And so for me, there's been like an era, an era of mindfulness going into my cooking practice now and like feeling a connection to the ingredients and the fact that I can't access like markets and stuff like that right now have been like really hard for me. Yeah, there's there's something to the practice of sort of planning out everything you're going to eat in a week and going for one grocery store trip. It's really forced me to think more about how long does it take for vegetables to go off? And what do I really need? And how can I use this stuff in my cupboard more effectively? Is that the kind of stuff you mean? or? Yeah, like making uh, choices that will like maximize how much use I get out of an item and like really not encouraging food waste or, or finding ways to do something with food waste, you know, because there have been weeks where I've been like overly ambitious in terms of my, how much I wanted to cook that week. 
versus weeks where I've just been like, okay, I didn't buy enough of something. And so like having that practice and also like finding a new appreciation for my mother who cooked for six to eight people for the majority of my life, you know, and the kind of grocery planning that goes into that. And like just the sheer amount of groceries. When I grew up, groceries would take like two hours to three hours and like three or four stores to get everything we needed for the next week or two. And now that I'm like limited in where I can go and how long I can be out, it's like, okay, what are the compromises I have to make and how quickly and efficiently can I make them? Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. And the stress of going to a grocery store really makes you want to plan out in advance anyways and buy in bulk. <laughs> the uh, the freezer has become my best friend. <laughs> True, yeah. <laughs> well, like, even that I've like discovered there are certain things that don't freeze well. Spinach, for instance. <laughs> you have to be committed to a certain texture if you freeze it's it. It's true, yeah. Oof. I find kale freezes a little bit better because it's kind of just more robust generally. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's good to know. Uh, cabbage <laughs> did not freeze well for me, so mm. that was the thing as well. <laughs> but like, of course, I live in like a like a fifty fifty year old apartment, so like freezer space is kind of at a premium. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of tough. Like, you want to freeze stuff to save it for longer, especially like I've been. When I bring home fruit now, I've been trying to take like the ends of strawberries or whatever and freeze them and use them in smoothies. But now my freezer is like more full than it's ever been. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's so funny because like I come back from the grocery store and we've been trying to do groceries every two to three weeks because I have a car and so I can bring that much home at once. And it's just like you just can't physically get through your perishables in that much time. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we'll we'll turn maybe to the art-based questions a little bit. Uh, uh, one thing I'm really curious about is your role as Poet Laureate specifically. That's sort of a more public-facing role, um, even more so than being an artist generally. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering how that role has changed uh, now that we're all being asked to stay indoors and to sort of avoid other people. Yeah, I think at this point in my laureateship, about a year in, it would have been established that I was doing certain events with the city, that I was taking part in like public gatherings um, and sharing my work that way. And what I'm feeling right now is that, one, a lot of people have turned to art in this time, and that, two, there's still almost an obligation to create work that reflects the life of the city, which is what my role is. So it's been like very fascinating to still feel like I'm a part of the fabric of the artistic community and feel like I'm contributing to it, especially in my role as Poet Laureate without, again, having the kind of the institutional support. And so it kind of comes down to this question, like, are you a poet laureate because you get to go to fancy events and speak at, you know, big things where the mayor is, or are you the poet laureate because you still do the work um, and you write things that people need to hear? Mm -hmm. And I think that question becomes like very personal because the city is at capacity and has had to like let staff go. So the support that I might have experienced at this time is just not available for me um, professionally. And so at the same time, it's kind of like, okay, 
once again, you're on your own and you have to figure out what these things mean. Yeah. And I, if I'm recalling correctly, one of the things you wanted to bring to your role as poet laureate was sort of the sense of uplifting people and bringing people into poetry. I guess the first first question is, <laughs> am I remembering that correctly? But but secondly, sort of, how are you approaching that during the pandemic? Yeah. So during the pandemic, I opened a series of workshops, most of which went through. And the new like online delivery actually made it so that there were a lot of people who would otherwise not be able to access teaching who were now able to take on poetry. So that was really beautiful and really fascinating. And I had kind of people from all levels of professionalism come into my workshops and work with each other and learn from each other. So that was really beautiful. I've also had um, some issues creating, right? And like putting out creative work, especially in that first kind of month long period where we didn't know how long lockdown was going to be. And we didn't know what was normal. And during that period, I just I wasn't able to create, I wasn't able to reach out to people, I wasn't creating opportunities. But since then, um, I've fallen back into, I think, like more healthy habits around creation. Um, and that in itself, I think is uplifting to a lot of people knowing that there are still like mentors and stuff like that who are creating work during this time can be very comforting. And then the last thing I've done is I've started my press. And so I'm going to be looking for uh, people to publish new bodies of work. And we'll do like kind of short run chapbooks at this point of the publishing career, because I'm not exactly prepared to like publish someone's full book. But that I think will be a really important mechanism for a lot of emerging poets who we will select for this press uh, to get their work out there and to distribute it to the people who need it most. Yeah, I'm wondering, um, just in case we forget to plug it at the end, could you tell us a little bit more about the press that you're starting and how people that are interested can find it? Yeah, so uh, the press is named moonjellyhouse.ca. And it's a collaboration between myself, uh, my partner, who is both a visual artist as well as a poet like me, and our good friend, Catherine, who is the editor. And so Catherine has a writing background as well that spans not just poetry. And our intention initially was to take submissions and print like small runs of people's works, people who hadn't been published before specifically emerging BIPOC voices. And what we found with the submission process is that there's just so many like really, really talented poets who have not been given a platform in the mainstream who are seeking out opportunities like the ones we're providing. And so we're actually in the process now of gathering more funds so that we can fund more printings than we had intended. Yeah. And just uh, for Listeners that might not know the term, BIPOC is Black, Indigenous, and People of Color? Yeah. That's great. That sounds like a really interesting project, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys produce out of it. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be really powerful. Awesome. <laughs> Excited. Um, yeah, and since your other role, Nisha, is Executive Director of the Edmonton Poetry Festival, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about what it's been like coordinating what would be a really big event during a pandemic and trying to deal with that uncertainty? Yeah. So for many people in the events industry, both as a performer, but as an organizer, first of all, uh, it's been 
there's been this pressure, I think, at first, the pressure was to produce, to still get events going, to get things going. And what we're finding now is that there's like an overabundance because people can access events from anywhere. So you have like these like big, wide national audiences, but you actually have less people for the most part coming to these things because there's just so many things that people can attend. And now what we're seeing from the organizer standpoint is that people are starting to be more mindful in what they're putting out. And so they're choosing to have deeper engagement. They're choosing to have more curated things go out. So it's not just a scramble for, oh, whoever's available to get work out there. It's now like, okay, what would have, what would have our regular programming been and how can we distribute it online or how can we be more creative around it? And so things like interactive panels where it might have been just a poetry reading to keep audiences engaged, like pre-recording videos and like, you know, splicing them together with uh, other types of performance in order to produce like a packaged content that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Um, marketing through different channels, like those things have all changed as an organizer. So it's been very interesting to see which festivals and which organizations are able to adapt and which industries are able to do that. Not every industry is, and that's why the Poetry Festival is kind of in a place of being like, you know, optioned for more success than others. Because like, for instance, an opera house can't transition to online in the same way a poet reading three poems can. Right. I, I'm, I'm curious. So that sounds like it, it takes a lot of new skills and learning. Is that something that you've been struggling with? Or is this stuff that you sort of, you already knew and you're invigorated to be applying to a, a new context? Sure. I think uh, what a lot of it comes down to is just like marketing skills, right? Like how do you package something in a way that other people can both hear about and also participate in? And so some of the skills are ones that I have employed in like kind of my personal marketing when I do shows, when I'm promoting things. Um, but I've also like lost all my staff support. And so now I'm doing like three or four different jobs at once. And that in itself is a bit of a bit of a learning curve for me. Yeah, it sounds like a lot. <laughs> um, so I thought we could maybe talk a little bit sort of more broadly about how COVID has been affecting artists. Uh, and one of the first sort of areas that has been a really big impact is employment and income. So I guess my first question on this is, have you gotten a Patreon yet? <laughs> I have. Yeah. I don't know if you saw me launch it, but it was no, so funny because I've actually, I had it ready to go four months ago and I was like, okay, I'm going to launch the Patreon. There are definitely people who want to support me who don't necessarily have time to come to my shows and I was like, I had it all ready to go. I literally have the email receipts. My virtual assistant was like reviewing it. And we were like, okay, let's launch it. And then things just like got really out of hand. And I was like, oh, okay, now I'm not going to launch it because I don't want to look like that artist who's like plugging their Patreon during a pandemic. And then I was just like, no, fuck it. Like I have to be that artist because I don't have any other choice. Yeah, I feel like a lot of artists are necessarily going in that direction because in-person ways of making income aren't happening as much. So 
yeah, like we literally have to get more creative, right, during this time. And so I don't know if it makes me more creative to do something that many other people have already done. But I was like, okay, why not me? Like, why not make that extra 20 bucks or that extra 30 bucks? It'll add up over a year. Definitely. I'm wondering if you could maybe explain a little bit about how an artist usually makes money, just not in a pandemic context, but just in general times? Because I think a lot of people don't really know how artists fund themselves. Sure. Um, So I was, I would like to specify that there are like really successful artists who make all their money through like corporate work, essentially, right? They're writing commercials, they're performing, they're doing massive art installations, they're doing public art that kind of stuff. Those are not the types of artists that I work with, that the level that I work on. Then there's also like the really emerging artists, the ones who still have like full-time day jobs in non-artistic fields. And then they do art almost as a hobby. And there's like a small benefit where they make some income, but very little from their art. So most artists in Canada are kind of between that emerging artist and what I am, which is like the, the middle the middle level of artist. And so artists like me, most of us know that there's not enough money coming in from like corporate gigs and from just like the gig economy to kind of keep us sustained. So we rely on three streams of funding. The first one is the gig income. The second one is grant funding. And the third one is often having like a part-time job, usually within the artistic sector, but a lot of the time not. And so those kind of three areas are where all of my income comes in. Grant funding is so interesting because like you can get you can have a grant year where you make most of your income that year like over 50 to even 70%, but then you're doing your grant project for the next 2 years. And so you don't have any income come in the next year from grants. So a lot of it is just like money management. Some of us take up like many contracts gigs during the year. We do teaching, we um, we travel and we make money that way. But all of it really varies on like what the individual practices and what the art, what the artist is willing to do. And so I'm lucky that my like artistic day job is still in the arts and that I still get to work in close proximity with other artists. And so that's been like really beneficial for my overall practice. But this is why you like have so many artists like waiting tables and, you know, like taking care of children. Many of them work in roles that are like caretaking roles uh, that are like still allow them to have the the flexibility of doing art in their own time. Yeah. So I wonder if we can unpack those sort of three different sources of income and talk about how the pandemic is affecting it. So let's maybe let's start with grant funding. Is that sort of a more stable force throughout the pandemic or is that changing as well? I think it's been really interesting because there were a lot of funders who came on board and were like, we're going to create emergency one-time grants. And so there were three different organizations that I had access to who did this. And all of the grants were tied to creation of new work, but for the funds to come in now. So they were doing like an expedited grant jury 
um, where you would hear back a lot sooner than a normal grant process. And some like regular streams of grant activities, like travel grants, were all suspended. And so the idea was that you would do like new innovative projects during the time of crisis. And some of the understanding behind it was that people need this kind of stuff right now. So you are fulfilling like a specific need for others. And so these kind of like one-time emergency grants, well, they're beneficial because you're like, okay, great. I have access to emergency funding in case I lose most of my income, but they're also really short term. So we don't know what's going to happen after those grants run out. And there was one here in Edmonton that was intended for like, for probably like about 60 to 100 artists and something like 600 people applied to it, you know, so it's not exactly going to be sustainable for everyone. There was also like the Writers Trust used basically their entire savings to give out money to writers who had lost income. And it was such a popular program that they had to do it by lottery. So they did three rounds of lottery where like 100 to 200 people across Canada were selected, you know, and like, of course, that like didn't work out for the vast majority of writers. Yeah. Plus, um, if they're using their savings might have an impact in the future on the grants that are available exactly. year or two years. Yeah. yeah. And then the Canada Council, which is like primarily the government's granting body, so where artists receive grant funding from the government, all the stimulus and like money that the government has been putting into the arts has been funneled through big organizations like the Canada Council for the Arts or Heritage Canada. And those funds, what we're seeing is that those funds are being expedited, but not that much is changing. And so uh, at most, I might have access to an extra kind of $10,000, which is like really cool. But at the same time, you're like, well, how long are you going to have to stretch those funds? Right? right. Is yeah. this going to be like the only $10,000 you get for 12 months or for six months or for two months? Like we just don't know at this point. And so that's the kind of scary part around it. And there's no kind of talk about like, well, what's going to happen if the grants run out and what's going to happen once the timeline runs out, you know, and like a lot of these grants, like there are so many more people who are applying to them than people who are going to receive them. And that's different from the usual grant ecosystem, because I can kind of plan around several different grants and be like, okay, let's say I get one out of every five grants, this is the position I'll be in. And if I get all five grants for a given year, this is the position that I'll have to take. And this is how I'll have to manage my practice as well as my finances. Right. And so that's a lot more difficult in this context, I'd imagine. Extremely difficult in this context. And I'm lucky that I don't make a lot of money through travel. Uh, which means that I didn't lose a lot of travel income. But for like artists who do, for instance, the Fringe festivals, they do the whole season of Fringe across Canada. They're now out of work quite significantly. Like that was supposed to be their income, their biggest source of income for the whole year. Wow. Yeah. So I guess what I'm hearing on grants is there's still a lot of money available, maybe even a little bit more, but it's changing the kinds of grants that are out there and there's a lot of uncertainty. So for in terms of planning that lumpy income, uh, to borrow a phrase that we were using before the show, 
It's it's getting more difficult. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting because the government announces like big stimulus packages for, you know, quote unquote, the economy. And then there's like these separate funding packages for artists as if we're not part of the economy, you know, as if people haven't turned to art every single day of the pandemic. And instead, we're relying on like literal lotteries, right, where there's like our name is being drawn out of a hat to see whether we're going to be able to sustain ourselves. And like this pandemic is going to be absolutely lethal to those mid-career artists who will not be able to come back to art. You know, the ones who were starting out in their first like five years of practice who still have like job prospects somewhere else. Um, and they're going to go back to those job prospects if they still exist because the art just didn't make them enough money in a short enough period of time. Yeah. And I actually, in preparing for this interview, I found an estimate that uh, about 700,000 people work in arts and culture in Canada. So this is not like a small part of our economy, even though limiting art to just its economic impact is obviously not something we want to do. It's this is also a lot of people and their livelihoods that are involved. And there's also like a huge amount of artists who would do this full time if they could get things like benefits or health care or take care of children while on this salary. Like there is a huge opportunity cost being made for artists to work full time as artists that we don't talk about. And so there are people left in like other sectors of the economy that are not using may- maybe their full potential. Yeah. And I guess maybe that could bring us to the second the second of those three places where artists typically get their income, which is that sort of day job. Um, and is it fair to say that for artists, that's more often than would be um, the case generally? It's in sort of precarious and um, sort of like wage worker income? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for... Like I said, a lot of those like emerging kind of younger artists, it's very common for them to be in like wage earning jobs and like serving jobs and kind of those part time contract jobs. And then as you get further along in the arts with people who've been in the arts a little bit longer, many of them have more established roles like planning festivals or you know, like organizing events or working in admin and stuff like that. And they've kind of figured out a formula that works for them. And so I would say it is true for those like emerging artists that it is often the case that they're being like doubly affected. They're not making money from the arts and now they're not making money from their normal job as well. Right. And so how how helpful has that the government's emergency response benefit or the wage subsidy been for that segment of income? Is it a good program? Are there problems with it? I think it's interesting because uh, there has been a pressure for artists to continue working during this time. And this pressure is coming from like our like big art organizations as well as from like social places where people are like, okay, like we're going to consume art and therefore you should keep working. And so there has been a pressure to keep working, like to somehow work through the pandemic. And for those people, what happens is that they don't end up qualifying for benefits, you know, and that's left them in a very difficult position. Other people have been like, okay, I'm going to use this time to, like collect benefits, but also take a break because I can't scramble for those 100 or $200 gigs. 
And that's just for artists who still have a practice that can be digitized. For the artists who can't, like they're just out of luck and they're out of work. So they are hopefully, um, I would hope, uh, receiving benefits from either their workplace or from the government. Yeah. And so I, I guess the the sort of most vulnerable chunk is that third chunk, um, the, you know, the gigs that people are doing or the productions that they're involved with and things like that. Um, is there, are there ways that that loss in income has been made up for or that you've seen? Yeah. So we've seen like big organizations step up and get funds into the hands of artists by sponsoring content and sponsoring like online uh, shows and online readings and online workshops and stuff like that. So I think it's been really interesting because even then, like these are one time gigs, you know, like it doesn't look good for these organizations to fund a single artist multiple times. So even in the gig economy, like we're losing most of our gigs for performance art, especially, and we're not necessarily earning them back. And so even though like there are organizations who are still committed to like bringing art into their business and into their practice, um, the reality is that everyone has this mentality that like, we have to help each other out, which is great and really beautiful. But it also means that like, we're not able as individual artists to replace all of our gig income. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether, do you see this as sort of a short-term problem or is it something that's going to be continuing for, for longer than we might think? So I think the common consensus between arts organizers and artists themselves is that like the years that we've spent building up audiences, uh, like that recovery is going to take a really long time. Like we're talking three, four years to even come back to the place where audiences kind of trust enough to gather in the same numbers as before. And like with the phasing in of the economy um, here in Alberta, like we're not even allowed to have more than 15 people in a room and they have to socially distance. And like, I just wonder, like, how can I socially distance what would have been a 20 person reading at a coffee shop? You know, like, is that going to be like five people sitting in an event? And how do we choose who those five people are? And like, how do we even make enough money to pay our artists if only five people are attending? You know, like a big theater can have like, you know, socially distanced seating and still have a 100 people come to their show. But for the small to mid-sized venue, this is going to absolutely devastate us if our audiences do not trust the public enough to come back. Yeah. It's a huge issue. Um, I'm wondering if um, thinking about sort of different kinds of artists, do do you think, are there any um, art mediums that are going to be particularly badly hit or any that sort of will be less badly affected than the others or are all artists being hit with this about the same amount? I think uh, the performing arts are going to be hit the most. And so they're the ones who rely on ex- like the exact thing that's not allowed, which is like large gatherings of people, you know. And for years, we've been building up strategies to just build momentum to get more and more people out. None of our workflow has ever centered on like doing this type of work, like digitizing as much of it as possible. 
And so I do think the performing arts are going to be in a state where like we're going to lose quite a lot of people and that's going to affect our recovery as well. Yeah. Actually, um, in some of the prep for this interview, I was reading about the the UK and its theater scene. So there is an estimate that found about 70% of performing arts companies are at risk of closing by the end of the year in the UK, which I, I would imagine is probably broadly similar to in other countries. And that actually includes the like the very famous Globe Theatre. So I, I guess my question is, do, do you think we stand at risk of losing certain kinds of art as a result of the pandemic? I think we... I think we are going to lose a lot of those, like I said, those mid-level and those emerging companies that were just getting their feet. And unfortunately, those small like grassroots organizations, those theaters that are headed by women and by BIPOC people and by LGBTQ, uh, you know, mandates, like those are the ones that are going to close first. And they're the ones who are often the cause of the big changes later on, right? The big changes and huge organizations, they're the ones doing advocacy work. They're the ones reaching out to marginalized artists. Like those are the organizations we're going to lose. We're not going to lose, you know, the big fringe festivals. We're not going to lose the NHL. We're not going to lose these like giants in the arts and culture sector. We're literally going to lose all the people making these like hard choices at the very, the very basic and the very human level. Right. I guess it's kind of similar to there's this interview about restaurants that I was listening to a little while ago where one of the commentators said restaurants will survive, but they might all be Taco Bell. Is that kind of what might happen with art? Honestly, I don't even think Taco Bell's going to make it, but like, <laughs> I, do think, I do think that's going to happen to a lot of these companies, you know, and we're going to bring art back to this like grassroots level where the only people able to make art are the ones who make significant sacrifices to do it or the ones who are wealthy enough to weather the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering, um, how do you think that, I guess you, you could answer this either personally to yourself or to sort of the art that you've observed from others as well. Um, I'm curious about how art is changing since the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. Well, it's pretty common uh, in writing that like a writer writes about what they know, an artist writes about what they know. Nina Simone famously said that art is a reflection of life and we write about the society that we live in. And so when the fabric of society changes, so does our art. And we're seeing these like this pandemic art emerge, you know, art that deals with uncertainty and trauma and grief in a way that other people haven't seen before. And for many artists, like this is what we're doing because this is what we do. We reflect the times that we live in. We reflect our lives in our art. Right. So some new themes that are being covered in art today because society is changing and the way we're handling it is changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm also curious as I'm, um, I've I've noticed that you've been doing a little bit more visual art recently, and we talked about the the prints that you've been doing. I'm curious as to whether that is something that the pandemic has spurred on, or is that something that you had been shifting to already? It's really interesting because, like, I've always had a visual art practice, um, whether it was professional or not. 
and my intention with my with my second full manuscript was to write a book of visual art and poetry. And so this was something that I've been planning since last October that now is able to see more of a light of day just because we have kind of the the attention to do it. And what I'm learning is that like there are certain things that are new and certain things that are planned or old or common and people on the outside can't really tell the difference. Yeah. So uh I don't know if you came across this on Twitter, but uh or wherever, but Billie Eilish was recently she recently said she wrote a whole new song in quarantine and that kind of sparked a discussion online about the pandemic and the pressure to create that people are feeling. And I'm wondering if that's something that you're feeling right now and and if so, how do you deal with that? Well, like I've tied so much of my personal worth into whether I can create or not. So I feel a lot of pressure from myself to create. And it's been like a really big experience in how to humble myself to realize that I cannot create at the same pace or the same level or complexity that I want to. Not that I'm capable of, but that I actually want to. And that's actually been the case all the time for art. So in a way, that's not that different. It's just exacerbated um, during the crisis. On the other hand, like um, the art I am creating is different. It's it's a it has a different feel to it. And that in itself can be really exciting when things do work out. And so I'm not creating as much as I want to, but the stuff that I'm creating is um, something that I couldn't have predicted. And and do you think that's going to have like a lasting impact on the kind of art that you're doing for the rest of your life? Or do you anticipate sort of going back to themes that you would ordinarily have gone to? I think that it will impact how much experimentation I was comfortable with at this time in my life. And my philosophy right now is just like, why not just try as many new things as possible? Because you've already lost the income from your gigs and you've already put in your name for these grants and you might get them and you might not. So like, why not just do whatever you want? And so in a way, it's a return to those early days as an artist where I didn't have to rely on things for income and I could just do whatever I wanted. So maybe a little bit more freedom. That's nice. (laughs) Freedom at the cost of a a lot of job security, but definitely still a, a version of freedom. Yeah. So... Connected to those kinds of like the links between income and, and art, there seems to be a little bit of pressure for artists to digitize their work if they can. I, I'm wondering if you could say whether you think that's a good thing. And if so, um, are there drawbacks as well? And how, how do those get managed? Well, like I said before, like there are certain practices that are going to be very difficult to digitize and still promote like safe social distancing, right? Like if you want to digitize an entire uh, production of a show, like a theater show, you would still need to break quarantine rules to do so. And so that practice can't be digitized. Um, My practice can. And so I think that it's been really beneficial to have funds directed towards digitization uh, because it's allowed people like me to do performing art continually. But 
there needs to be flexibility with where these funds are going because not everyone is going to have the benefit of being able to move towards new avenues. And the one really big benefit of digitization is that access is now hugely improved, right? And so like what the disability community has been saying for years is that we need more accessible events. And what we're learning is that all these organizations had it in them all along to make things (laughs) more accessible and they just weren't doing it. Yeah, it turns out a lot of work could have been virtual when people said that it wasn't for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a a podcast that usually is more about ethical consumption. We've been doing COVID um, episodes because it's such an important shift in the way everybody's living. But I'm wondering if we could, just pulling back to our general podcast theme, do you have any advice on what people can do to support art and artists during this time? Mm -hmm. I think right now it's really important that if you have the time and the money to support like early to mid-level artists you should be doing that instead of like attending these huge virtual concerts where you pay to get a zoom link for people who are going to make thousands of dollars anyway because like two thousand dollars to a huge name in the industry is not going to go as far as $2,000 to like an early career artist who now just made three months of income. So I would say like now's the time to be extremely mindful of like who we're paying attention to and how we do it. Do you have any suggestions for where people can find new and emerging artists to support? So like every city that has like a local arts council will for sure right now be promoting as many small artists as they can. And so like, that's a good place to start. Like supporting local artists has the most benefit to you if you're looking at it from that perspective. And then you can look into like your friend circles and your friends groups, or you can like even branch out to like random people on Twitter and stuff like that by searching like the popular hashtags and stuff like that. Um, If you're into like visual artists, like searching up things like, the hashtag commission on Instagram and on Twitter will show a lot of artists who are open to commissions right now. Um, if you're more into like visual arts or stuff like that, you're going to find people who have like digitized their galleries. If you're into performance arts, you might have to go onto like Instagram TV or TikTok or YouTube and find people there. So maybe if you've been, you know, wanting to get a painting commissioned for a long time, maybe now's the time to do it. <laughs> Now would 100% be the time to do it. Love it. Get that um, Get that classical portrait done of your cat that you've always thought about <laughs> getting done. Yeah. <laughs> Was there any last things that you wanted to say, Nisha? No, I think it's, I think that's everything. Like, it's just, it's going to be a hard time for a lot of us. But like a lot of artists right now, like we're trying to look out for people's emotional well-being and mental health as well as our own on top of that. and so like supporting the arts is an extension of supporting care and supporting kindness. And I just, I want people to know that, you know, when they turn on Netflix for the sixth time in a week. Uh, so Nisha, do you, do you have anything to plug? This is a podcast after all. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, you can find me on Patreon, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, all at another Nisha. Uh, if you're interested in supporting any work that way, And if you want, you can follow me on those platforms. Uh, No pressure. 
whatsoever. <laughs> Love it. We'll, we'll put it um, in our in our show notes too, so people can find you Beautiful. that way, nice and easy. We're not on all of those platforms, but we are on Twitter. <laughs> Great. So while people are following you, they can follow us if they don't already. <laughs> Kristen's always Beautiful. posting substantive stuff. She posted a picture of a monkfish the other day to my horror. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much, Nisha, for joining us today. It was really, really lovely to speak to you. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was good. Thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone who was listening. Uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>